surround yourself with people throughout your life that will help be your advisors, not only give you good advice, but protect you from doing stupid things. Because once you get passionate, once you get relentless, you will often go down the wrong path, particularly when you're stubborn on top of it. You know, you will chase something and you'll waste energy, you'll waste time, and you'll blow it, potentially. You're listening to Femcanic Garage, the podcast that features women in the automotive and motorsports industries, a community that elevates, empowers, and evolves by smashing stereotypes and breaking down barriers for women. I'm your host, Jamie Glossman. Buckle up for the ride, Femcanics. Calling all women who love their ride. I would like to introduce you to a one-of-a-kind women's motor fest. You will not want to miss this sisterhood celebration of women-owned whips, cars, trucks, motorcycles, ATVs. If it has a motor, it belongs. Ladies, this is our motor fest. Boys are welcome to attend but the spotlight will be owned by the women in their whips. Check out all the details by visiting womensmotorfest.com. Lynn St. James is in the driver's seat today. If you know motorsports and of the Indianapolis 500, then you have probably heard of Lynn St. James. She's one of the most iconic women ever to have graced the motorsports industry. She is an author, businesswoman, and her awards and accomplishments read like a sizzle reel. Lynn is known as the American women racing icon of the century, the first women to earn Indy 500 Rookie of the Year, and has been invited to the White House not once, not twice, but three times. Now let's sit back and enjoy the ride. Hello, Femcanics. This is Jamie B. coming to you, and I have Lynn St. James in the driver's seat today. And you're no stranger to the driver's seat, my friend, right? No, I'm not. I uh, spent a lot of years in that driver's seat and couldn't wait when I was a kid to, to get in it, and, <laughs> and I've been in it ever since. Oh, I love it. I have a bucket list of guests that if I can get these women on my show, I feel like the Femcanic Garage podcast has arrived and you were in that bucket list, my friend. You were in the bucket list. That's sweet to hear. You know, it it brings a quick memory back that one of my bucket list items was to fly with the Thunderbirds. I was living in Daytona Beach at the time and they were putting out an air show there. And I grabbed my daughter and I said, we didn't have tickets or anything. And I just, we bought tickets at the gate. We went in and I thought they have to have a PR somewhere here, you know? And so I literally forced my way where I saw they were. And I I walked through this gate, you know, and I introduced myself to this guy that was in all uniform, you know, all the planes were out on the, on the uh, tarmac. And I just blah, blah, blah. I just rattled. I'm Lynn St. James. I'm a race car driver. And I've been wanting to fly with the Thunderbirds. And the guy said to me, you know, you are on our list. (laughs) I'm like, are you kidding me? I guess that we, um, we kind of, pulled together the crews and we asked who would they want to take for rides because they do that as a sort of a publicity thing. And I'm like, I'm here. Let's go. He goes, well, it's not quite that easy. (laughs) He said, you have to go through all these, you know, security checks and all that. But I did ultimately get to go to the Thunderbirds. But when somebody says to me, you're on our list, I'm like, wow, really me? (laughs) 
You were on the list. And how ironic you were both on each other's lists at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've heard stories about folks riding with the Thunderbirds. And just out of curiosity, did you get sick? I did not get sick. Um, I flew with the Thunderbirds and the Blue Angels, which is very unusual because usually you can't do one. You can't if you, if you do one, you can't do the other. But I did the Thunderbirds first. I didn't get sick, and they let me get the stick. I mean, I actually got to fly the plane. I mean, are you serious? Yeah, it was the. I swear to God, Jamie, this was one of the. I mean, at that time, it was one of the highlights of my entire life. It certainly was. It's still a memory. I have it on video because they videotape it. I have photos of it because they're, they have a photo, you know, photo crew that monitors all of this. And I mean, it was truly um, an extraordinary experience. Wow. I've seen like videos where people's faces are in the paper bag. Yep. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep. I was so proud. And I got my 9G pin. <sighs> so, you know, I mean, I'm built not visibly, I'm not visibly, what is the word? I, I, you know, I don't look the part. But I'm actually built for not just for speed, but for for that kind of I don't even know how to explain it, but for intensity, yeah, or the intensity of an experience that particularly when I got to fly the plane even myself. So I mean, obviously the pilot was probably right there on the stick too. But I don't know. I'm just uh, I there's some and it isn't a thrill seeking. It isn't like I like roller coasters and things like that. I mean, it's just there's something about the intensity of something that is also going fast. Yeah. But there's an intensity about it because you're, you're one with the equipment, you know, you're not one when you're sitting in a roller coaster thing, you are not one with that thing. You mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. you're along for the ride and that's it. Exactly. And even though I was along for the ride in the jet, um, I was strapped in, I was, you know, working with the ground crew, explaining things. It was just like sitting in the cockpit of a race car for the first time or the first time I was in an Indy car. You know, they're explaining everything. And I just got goosebumps you explaining this. I'm like, wow. The pre-flight, you know, where they explain everything. And I mean, the whole thing was, it was an immersive experience. And, and I was just, I was up, I was in for it. I was just, that was really fabulous. I've never done anything like you've done. For my birthday, my partner got me a driving experience. Ironically, with a woman that I interviewed her and her husband on a racing school, and I got to drive a Porsche Boxster spec at Willow Springs. Oh, cool. And Was that Melanie Patterson by chance? It was Martina Kwan. Oh, oh yeah. DK Racing School. Yeah, yeah, okay. And Martina's amazing. They were amazing hosts. And that was something that was in my bucket list is to truly experience a racing experience. And... I understand what you mean. It's like you become one with the machine. You feel when air lifts it a little bit, if there's a gust of wind. And I was in heaven. Folks who race describe the experience almost like a meditation to them. It's like mm -hmm. their whole world slows down. You don't hear anything like you do, but you don't. Yeah. And it's like you become one with the machine. And it was like a meditative experience for me. And I have ADHD, so keeping my attention, you know what I mean? And just to that, Im I, I can't even, I don't have to explain it to you. You know, you've got it because that is, it is, there's a, it's quiet, all of the distractions, all, you know, when, mm -hmm. even now while we're talking, there's stuff happening around us. There's, our thoughts are wandering sometimes even while we're talking. I mean, you know, but when you get in the car and you strap yourself in, all of a sudden, all of that disappears. It's a wholeness. And it's, it is like meditation. I mean, I've fallen asleep in the cockpit, you know, on the race <laughs> car. 
on the grid, you know, because they ran late, you know, because I'm just in this, I'm in this sort of meditative state. I'm in this meditative state. Yeah. yeah. While you were in the grid, <laughs> while you were driving, while you were in the grid waiting. Yeah. Oh, not while I was driving. You don't know. Well, because you run late sometimes, you know, I, I like to get in the car early and, you know, you get all strapped in and there's all the pre-race stuff going on and I was just sort of dozed off. <laughs> Not really, but, you know, I closed my eyes and was in a totally relaxed state. Oh, wow. And just for the listeners, Lynn, as you know, may or may not know, I do a pre-recorded bio. So the listeners already know just a little taste of your accolades. And <laughs> I mean, your life reads like a sizzle reel. <laughs> Truly. I mean, in the pre-interview, I shared with you that when I interview women like yourself, there's a million different directions we could take this interview. And I've been thinking about it and pondering with my partner on this, like, wow, here I have this time with Lynn St. James. What do I want to know about you? You've had such a rich career. How did you keep going? Because as a trailblazer, that's a lot to put on your shoulders. You carry stuff as a trailblazer that a lot of people that come after you, you kind of beat down the path, so to speak. Not that the path isn't still rough, but some of it's still beat down already. How did you do it? Well, I, you know, that's, it's hard to answer because I'm the most stubborn person probably that, I mean, we all kind of have fit into that. I think achievers are, are stubborn because it is not easy. I hear no all the time, even today. I've had the rug pulled out from under me. I've heard no's and no's always inspire me, always motivate me because I get pissy. I mean, I'm like, oh, no, oh, I'm going to show you, you know. So there's that almost a knee jerk sometimes, which can get you into trouble. One of the things, it's hard for me to answer your question because it's an instinctive energy that I have and a desire. It comes from desire. I mean, if I don't really want to accomplish something, if something isn't really important to me, I'm a lazy bum. I will not chase something just because I have to go chase something. You know, it's because I'm passionate and because I have a belief system. I think I'm fortunate that I grew up the way I did. Wasn't that odd or that abnormal, but it wasn't incredibly normal either. But it taught me without knowing I was being taught to be strong. My mom had polio, you know, as, a, as an infant, as a child. So she struggled all of her life. You know, as a kid, you're not paying all that much attention to, you know, your parents' struggles, but she was very spirited and um, was very mentally strong, you know, even though she, she had physical struggles and, and, and health struggles all of her life. But I went to a girl's school from seventh to 12th grade before, and I mean, this is back in the, in the 50s and 60s. So this is before women's lib, before, and the school was founded on teaching women, young women, to become self-sufficient, independent young women. Um, that was the philosophy of the school. So I had that exposure. Again, it wasn't like it was beaten into me, but it was I had that exposure. I was still shy, believe it or not. Nobody tends to believe that, but it's true. I was shy, quiet. I'm an observer of life. I'm always observing and learning as I observe. But once I got through all the normal stuff, graduate from school, get a job, fall in love, run a business, you know, build a business with my husband, my first husband, go to the races. Oh my God, that is the coolest thing I've ever done in my life was just even going to the races. And then, you know, later finding out that real people drove race cars 
once I got behind the wheel of my Ford Pinto, which was my first race car, that was my street car, there was something happened to me. Something inside me exploded, I guess you'd say, or just I found myself. Up to that point, I was really doing everything that society, I was trying to be a really good girl, you know, and just do everything that you're supposed to do and do it well. But there, an energy came out of me and a determination that I, I've lived with ever since. So I have to blame it on when you find your passion, when you find something, there's so much more in us than any of us know, but you got to find something that lights that fire or that, that sets it off or that inspires it. I don't know. Different people react differently. And be relentless in that search. Yeah. And then you become relentless. And I mean, and that literally, you know, from the time I started racing, I mean, it was in the very beginning, I was a little bit more reticent about, oh, am I really meant to do this? Or can I do this? Or, But the struggles were always, and the anticipation and learning not to build, how to deal with this. How did you work through that part, Lynn? Was there ever a moment where you're like, man, you know what? I'm going to throw in the towel. Oh, yeah. I can't do this anymore. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it's in my book, actually. I was so mad at um, Jack Roush in 1987 because he wouldn't let me in the car at the 24 hours of Daytona. I did one stint. We always have a rotation. And I was supposed to be in, and then I wasn't in, and I was supposed to be in, and I kept, when am I going to be in, you know, and it was just driving me crazy. At two o'clock in the morning, I called a friend of mine in Miami. I lived in South Florida at the time, and I said, that's it. I'm done. I'm tired of fighting these people. I'm tired of fighting these guys. I'm going to call a press conference. I'm going to retire from racing. And he says to me, Lynn, first of all, you're going to let somebody else take away your passion. That's absolutely not you. That's not the you I know. Secondly, if you call a press conference, nobody's going to show up. Nobody cares whether you're racing or not. You're the only one that cares. So he protected me from doing something really stupid. At seven o'clock in the morning, I got in the race car. I got all the the allotted time I had to have. And at two o'clock that afternoon, 12 hours after I was ready to retire from racing and cause a big stir that would have, nobody would have cared about, I was in victory circle at the 24 hours of Daytona and had my first win. So I've had many moments like that. The magic that I will share is to surround yourself with very important people that know you, care about you, understand you, know more about things than you do. In other words, have expertise in areas that you are not so sharp on. I just say surround yourself with people throughout your life that will help be your advisors, not only give you good advice, but protect you from doing stupid things. Because when, once you get passionate, once you get relentless, you will often go down the wrong path because particularly when you're stubborn on top of it, you know, you will chase something and you'll waste energy, you'll waste time and you'll blow it potentially. So I've just had many, many experiences where I have totally been blessed to have somebody intervene and keep me from doing something really, really stupid. If you could go back to your 18-year-old self and tell her one thing, what would you tell her? My 18-year-old self, I would have said, just stop worrying so much. Just stop thinking about everything so much. Just go live. What is your proudest career accomplishment, Lynn? You've had so many things. If you were to narrow it down to one and you could pick one pinnacle point do you think you could? No, I can't because people have asked that. That's a very, I get asked that often. The only answer I can make is that I had a long career. It's my body of work and that I've been able to make a difference, not only for myself, but for others. So it's the totality of 
what I've been able to do, how long I've been able to do it. It's like when I won Rookie of the Year at Indy. I had a one-race deal. Everybody was ready to write me off after that. I mean, everybody, the team owner, great job. I was 45 years old. I was the oldest rookie in the history of the Indy 500. So I was at the age that most drivers are retiring. So it was like, it's over, right? It's over. No, no. And so I went on and ran seven Indy 500s and raced until, you know, Indy cars till I was 53. So it's the body of work. It's the totality and it's the length of time and the fact that I was able to not only achieve these things for myself, but recognizing that I was actually making a difference for others. And, and that's, that's what I'm the most proud of. I've researched all my guests, but one of the things that really sticks out about you for me is your business acumen. My interpretation of a lot of the stuff that I've watched of you post, just a lot of content, is not only were you a driver, but you had to sell yourself a lot. Arguably, maybe more than some men in your era of driving. Is that an accurate assessment or interpretation? Or do you feel that you didn't have to sell yourself as much? Oh, no, 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 no. I, I had to sell myself. I started a company in 1979. I started racing in 77 and then in, or I mean in 74. And then in 79, I'm like, okay, I've got to figure out how to be a professional race car driver and turn this into a business because I, I don't have enough money to keep doing this or to do it at the level I want to do it. So I started a company called Creative Images. And then I would read uh, automotive news and advertising age. And I would, so I would be aware of what was happening in the industry, automotive industry, and in the marketing industry. I took, I went to Broward Community College and took Marketing 101 because I didn't go to college. So I wanted to understand what marketing was all about. And then I started the company and then I had a target list of companies that I would, and this was before Google, before the internet, before, you know, and I would try to find the name of somebody that worked at one of these companies. I'd look at the articles to see if they had a somebody's name, you know, like VP of marketing or somebody they quoted. And then I would write these letters and introduce Lynn St. James and I would have a picture of my race car of me and yada, yada. And then I thought, well, I can't sign this letter, Lynn St. James. It's like I'm writing about myself and then I'm signing my name. So I would make up names that as if the company was a bigger company, you know. And I realized racing is just no different than advertising and marketing on anything, you know, billboards, except they move and, and television commercials, except, you know, I mean, it's, it's a tool, it's a business tool. It's a, it's a product that you have to sell. And because I was in business with my husband, we had a consumer electronics manufacturers rep business and used to go to trade shows. This big CES show was in Vegas. Um, I learned business. And so once I transferred that knowledge and that experience to my sport, then I, it's a business. I think that definitely gave me an edge because most of the competitors that I was either competing against or trying to compete against were just race car drivers. I mean, they didn't understand the business of the sport at all. And today's drivers are much more aware and cognizant of the fact that it's a business. They usually have agents and business managers that take care of all that. I had an attorney once in a while that reviewed contracts, but I was my own salesperson, my own marketing, my own agent, my own business manager all through the career of Ford and in my IndyCar career. That gave me an edge, I think, because, you know, when you're sitting across the, the room, across the desk in a room pitching, and it's you you're pitching, 
I mean, that's pretty intimidating. What would a pitch sound like? I mean, you don't have to go into great details, but like, what is that like? (laughs) It's kind of fun. (laughs) Women like have this problem bragging about ourselves. I don't know any other way of putting it, right? But when you think about the essence of marketing, and I imagine what you had to do, it is selling them on you. A couple things to correct you on that. First, I had to sell them on the sport. And it's hard because you spend more time educating than you do selling. So you had to explain the difference, whether I was running IMSA or SCCA Trans Am or IndyCar, I'd have to explain the business of motorsports. What's it, you know, NHRA, what's F1? Because most of the people didn't really know that unless they were hardcore into racing. So I end up selling the sport. And then the key is to ask them, how are they spending their money? What is their priorities? Because unless you can fill a need, you can't sell what you're doing until you just find out what it is they need. Again, with Google and all of the you know access to information today, we almost know what every company is trying to figure out because it's in every publication. It's in CNN. It's on USA Today. It's in Wall Street Journal. It's in the New York Times. I mean, they're all transparent practically about what they're trying to do as a business. When I was doing it, you had to dig to find that out. And then you would only get maybe a a smitten of information before you went in. So I spent more time in my presentations asking questions and learning about the company than I did pitching. It was a defense mechanism because you're right. It's too hard to sit there and say, I'm great. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. So it was all about what can I do for you? And that's what I would advise any young drivers that are out there trying to get sponsors. Research the company find out what they're doing and find out what they're maybe not doing that they want to do. And if you can fill a need, then you have an opportunity to probably get some support, you know, to do business with them. And that's true with any. I'm sitting there even with a podcast. You find sponsors or advertisers. It's the same principles. It's timeless. Exactly. You've got to fill a need because there's lots of podcasts out there. You're not the only one doing that, you know. And even though at the time I was usually... More than likely, the only female pitching companies as as race car drivers, as athletes. At the same time, I I never pointed that out. So you never pointed out that, hey, I'm the only female. No, no, no. You would focus on what their need is. Right. And how whatever series I was racing in or whatever I was doing, how I knew that that could solve their problem or not. I'm seeing a theme here. I interviewed a young woman, Bree Lynch, and she's arguably one of the most successful young African-American female stunt drivers in Hollywood. Mm, And she said the same thing. Like when she was going in and pitching, she said, I didn't pitch that I am a woman of color. She went in and said, here's my understanding of your need. And here's how I can fill it. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty obvious if she's standing there that she's an African-American woman. Right. That's how I felt. It's pretty obvious I'm a female, you know, and I'm a super driver. I mean, I don't walk in wearing a race suit, but I have at least enough credentials and enough photos to prove that I can drive a race car, you know. Right, right. Now, one thing that I noticed, I watched a YouTube video that you did for a TED Talk. And one thing that I found interesting is... You literally only had annual contracts for, was it 12 years? Mm -hmm. Like year to year, you would have to go back and pitch this every year. Yeah. Yeah. That was. Did it ever get easier? No. And and then one year after I set the records at Talladega in 88, which was in October, it was always, I got, I hated this time of year, you know, the end of the year. Because you all, at this time of the year, often you didn't know what next year was going to look like, you know? And, And so I was literally in Detroit negotiating. 
and usually I negotiated with a very two or three people that were the decision makers. And then if there was a higher up, I had another separate meeting, you know, so I was usually only in, in a situation where I was dealing with one or two people. I walked in and there was a room full of people and I'm like, what the hell's going on? You know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so they were all very nice to me too, which was really unusual. And they were like congratulating me and everything we've accomplished and all that. And I'm like, oh, great. This is looking good. Maybe I'm going to have a good contract for next year. And then they proceeded to tell me that they had decided that I would not have a contract for racing. They were not going to continue to support me in my racing, but they wanted to retain me, you know, for personal service and, and, you know, as a spokesperson and personal service contract, which means I would make money, but that I wasn't going to be racing. And I was stunned. And I... This is the same year you broke a record in Talladega? Yeah. Yeah. They said, we don't feel there's anything left for you to do. You've done everything so well. You know, I mean, they really pumped this up like I was super, you know, some superstar or whatever. Kind of like the crap sandwich, (laughs) you know, (laughs) compliment crappy information and then good information. (laughs) So um, I thought about it. I was, I was like, am I hearing this right? You know, I am all ready to fight them for what series I'm going to race it or who's, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they're literally pulling the rug out under for my racing. And I stood up and I said, you know. Just so I'm clear, Lynn, how many years had you been with them at that point? This was in the end of 88. And I, so 81, 82, 83, 84, 85, 86, 87, eight years. So after eight years of them, wow. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, and granted, I had the wins at the 24 hours at Daytona. I had a win. I didn't have a win yet at Sebring, but I had a win at Glen. I mean, in other words, I'd done a lot. I mean, yeah. And they reminded me of all of that. I mean, so they were very, that's why I said they were so freaking nice. It was unreal. And then they pulled the rug out. And so I thought, okay, I know I was silent. I mean, it was like, I had to process this, you know, did I really hear what I just heard? Yeah. I stood up and I said, I really enjoyed our relationship. I want to thank you for everything you've done. If there's no racing, there's no Lynn. I walked out of the room. Woohoo, go Lynn. <laughs> what happened? Well, we ended up having further meetings and I got a deal the next year. You know, I mean, I was racing in the Trans Am series the next year. So I want to pause and let the listeners chew on that for a moment. There's such a deep, authentic lesson in that, Lynn, is that you are so clear on what you wanted and who you are and what you can provide that you walked away and said, sorry. If you want me, you take all of me, not part of me. That's exactly right. And that is a beautiful and terrifying lesson, (laughs) (laughs) right? To have the guts to walk away not knowing, hey, no, I want to race. I don't know how I'm going to get the money for this yet, but I'm not willing to sacrifice this thing that I know I'm meant to do and be and give you part of me. Yeah, I wasn't done yet. You know, I have so much to thank Ford Motor Company for, seriously, because they were a longtime sponsor on those one-year contracts. They gave me great equipment. My development as a driver was rich because of what they provided. Plus, I learned a lot about business, and I learned a lot about how cars get built. I learned a lot about the whole automotive industry by test driving cars. And, you know, besides by racing, I mean, I did get to go to manufacturing plants and and deal. I mean, I can't, I could go on and on with the list of of the amazing experiences and and insights that I was able to get about the automotive industry during those years. 
but it, they were all byproducts in my mind of, of my racing. And I appreciated every one of them, but they put my back against the wall so many times, which only strengthened me. To prepare you for that exact moment. They didn't know they were actually preparing you. Yeah. And I had other moments like that in 1992 at Indy. I mean, I had other moments that wasn't, that was one I remember that was probably the, at the time, the biggest frightful moment that I had. But I mean, I just knew I wasn't done yet. Pay attention because you learn from failure. You learn from the challenging. You don't learn a lot when you're riding high, when things are going well. You don't learn a lot. You know, you you learn more from those moments, those moments of of defeat or those moments of challenges that are pulling the rug out from under you that because you find out what you're made of. That's you know, you find out what your priorities are. Yeah. And I'm just recalling earlier in our conversation. Was it the 24 hours of Daytona? That was the story that you shared where you were literally within a 12-hour period, a swing from I'm retiring and quitting to winter circle. Yeah. If that isn't a perfect example of hang in there a little longer, that means you're really close. Yeah. You're really close. You just got to keep pushing. And sometimes that's hard. Yeah. We hear stories about that. It's that time when you're ready to walk away or when failure's just too much or whatever, and, and you change course, you change direction and whatever. And then it was right there. It was right on the cusp of achieving what it was you were trying to achieve to begin with. So, Would you say you've always been received with welcome arms in your industry? Hmm. Because you've mentioned how many mentors you have. And let's face it, if I'm a gambling person, those mentors were probably men which is awesome. And I've also heard stories where that doesn't always mean that there's all situations where females have been welcomed with open arms. Well, first of all, the, the definitive word there is always. And if the answer is to always, the answer is no. I mean, but I think that I've been so celebrated and welcomed and appreciated for the last 20 years for what I did the 20 years prior during those 20 years prior, no. I mean, it was a very short list of people who welcomed me, but the key was they were the most important people. So the majority of the people were trying to get rid of me or were trying to undermine my success or were trying to at least ignore me if nothing else. But that short list of people that either embraced me or that welcomed me or that said, we need her, we want her, whatever the whatever was in their brain, I don't know. It was a short list, but it was the most important list. And that goes back to what you originally said when we started this interview. It's that proximity to those core people that help drive you. And sometimes the proverbial slap in the face, wake up, what are you doing? This isn't the Lynn I know. Get your crap together. Yep. <laughs> and now pull up your boots and let's get moving, right? Put your big girl boots on and go to work, girl. <laughs> That's right. Let's get to this. Oh, man. Like some of your stories, I just get goosebumps listening to them. Do you ever pause and almost like pinch yourself? Like, wow. Like you just reflect on your life in those moments. It almost seems like surreal to you? Well, to be honest, I don't think about it until people like you ask me questions about them. <laughs> when I wrote my book, it was at a moment of, I had had my last Indy 500 in 2000, didn't go well. <laughs> I crashed and I can't leave it this way. And I thought I got to have one more chance. And then I thought I've never had a full season. I've always had just either Indy or a limited number of races. So I thought 
if I write a book, I hate to say this, it was rather, it's a rather Heidi thing to say, but you know, Mario Andretti had a, a whole celebration of his whole last year of racing. He announced this was his last year, and then they just did a whole Mario Andretti celebration at every race. So I thought if I do a book about the last journey, the last season, the last trip, and I follow that, then the book comes out after that. I thought that would be a great strategy. So I'll get a publisher. And if I get a publisher, then I'll get a sponsor so that I could then, they'll be celebrated through that whole year. You know, I, to me, it made total sense. Yeah. Well, I got the publisher, but I didn't get the sponsor. And so my racing career was now over and the publisher really convinced me about reflecting on my whole body of work, my whole career. Mm -hmm. So it forced me to go back and remember these stories. Yeah. At that point, I was like, you know, done, done, done. You know, I'm on to the next thing. You know, I worked with, a, with another writer who helped me because he interviewed a lot of the people that were in my life. And I started reading his interviews and I'm like, are you kidding me? That happened? Well, I was so busy doing what I was doing that I was sometimes totally ignorant of, of what was going on around me. And the combination of his interviews and my recollection and my knowledge of everything, that's combined, which is really what made the story, I think, pretty rich. But it's also forced me for the first time to look back. Mm -hmm. I had really never looked back. I always looked forward. And so that's when I started to appreciate more <laughs> about what I had done because I, I realized I had to write it. I mean, I had to, what, well, what happened then? Or when, how did that happen? I mean, that story about Daytona. What was that experience like, like pausing and recalling your career? What was that like? It was very healing. It was at a, it was at a critical time. It was when my mom was ultimately ended up passing, which she had been, had so many health problems that so many doctors said she's probably not going to make it, that she always made it. But um, this time she was you know, who knows? And at that time, she didn't make it. So it was a very rough time in my life. Um, my age, 50s, you know, um, my daughter was graduating from high school. All of a sudden, I felt pretty useless. And everything that ever I valued was either lost or was at the end. So it turned out to be a very healing process. It made me appreciate myself and appreciate others that I always appreciated, but now I was able to acknowledge that. So it was, it was very healing. It turned out to be a really right, the right thing and a really good thing to do. I always ask women that I interview this out of curiosity. You've mentioned your mom. Now, was your dad pretty prominent in your life as well? No, he was pretty absent. He ran a family business, a sheet metal business. And so he worked a lot. And my mom and dad, they ultimately divorced, but they weren't a great I mean, you know, that's not like they fought or there were any big issues, but he was very much absent in my life growing up. What did your mom and dad think about you pursuing this career? I mean, you were obviously an adult at that time anyway, but... Yeah, that's it. I started so late, you know, that they were pretty much not... Parents still have opinions. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, my mom, I used to blame her because she taught me how to drive. <laughs> and... Uh, and so, but she said she had no idea that that would go this direction. And every time I would have success, like I'd win a race or whatever, even in my amateur days, and she'd say, oh, good, honey, congrats. Does that mean you're all done now? And, you know, <laughs> thinking it would be over, you know, and I said, no, mom. <laughs> and my dad, I never knew what he thought because he was very absent in my life after they got divorced, but he showed up at Indy. I'll never forget that. He didn't have a ticket. He talked to one of the yellow shirt guys and this yellow shirt guy comes into the garage after the race was over and said, there's a man out here who says he's your dad. And I'm like, 
seriously? And I said, well, you might as well bring him in. I, I don't know. And and so my dad showed up. Even if he came up with the lie, you still want to meet him for being that gutsy. <laughs> yeah, you know, and so, I mean, I certainly knew who my dad was, but it was still a case of, I, I didn't know what to say. You know, it was, we were all at the end of the race in the big, and my dad came in and, and he was obviously very proud. Anyway, but he was pretty absent throughout my life, really. So my mom was the driving force. What does your daughter think about this? Well, she's... Um, she has a celebrity mom. Like, <laughs> Yeah, she's, she got tired when she was in high school. She said, you know, she'd go to school on Monday and everybody wanted to know what, what happened at the races or whatever. And she's, she said, what am I racing? Why don't you go to the internet if you want to find out what happened? You know, she hated the fact that it was she was supposed to be the source of information. But she uh, she's not a risk taker. She She drives the speed limit. She stops at complete stops at stop signs. I mean, you know, (laughs) I'm like, what are you doing? You know, you're supposed to do. That's right. Um, And so we are, we, we laugh a lot now, but yeah, she's, um, but you know, she thought she thinks it's cool. I mean, she's proud too. So what's next for Lynn? Well, this has kind of been an interesting year, obviously for everybody. Uh, I was caught off guard um, by being honored at Amelia Island as the honoree. These are race car drivers that I admire. These are my heroes that have been honored all these 25 years prior. And so that was a big surprise. And it seemed to open the floodgates of remembering Lynn. And so I've had another honors. So this year has been really some unexpected, absolutely amazing, fun things, as well as some responsibilities. I'm now on the board of the organization that oversees all of motorsports in the United States, but they call it independent board member because I'm not affiliated with any of the sanctioning bodies. And so I have a voice at the table now um, by invitation, as opposed to, I've always had a voice, but it wasn't at the table and it wasn't by invitation. And I'm also the representative of the United States for the FIA, the International Women in Motorsports Commission. So I feel like I'm in a position now at this later stage of my life to, I hope, be able to assemble the other people that care about this subject, which is to help grow the sport and grow the industry. And I haven't figured out how to do that yet, but that this is the year that I've been processing all of this and and hope to maybe create an organization or an umbrella, not an organization, but an umbrella over everything that's happening, because there's a lot going on for women in the automotive industry, but it's very fragmented. And everybody's fighting, not fighting, but everybody's struggling for their own space. And and because of the internet and social media, there's things pop up, you know, but I I would like to elevate everybody that's doing something and somehow figure out how to do that so that people aren't replicating necessarily what somebody else is doing. They're filling gaps. Create synergies. Yep. Yeah. Collaboration, synergies, um, and all of that. So I'm trying to wrap my head around all of that. And that's one of the reasons why, I mean, I am delighted to be on your show or on your podcast, because I think I want people to reach out and tell me what's going on and tell me what they need or tell me what's missing or tell me how I can help because that's what I want to do. I want to be able to pull it together and so that there's more force and energy going forward because the leaders of the industry, which are predominantly men, but there are many more women that are now in those tables that are at the table and have voices I think a lot of them are struggling. They don't know what to do, you know? So I really want to try to uh, maybe have a collective voice to help move the ball forward. It's like that mentoring that you talked about in your career. Yeah. And having that, that's a beautiful thing. I think this is a great time to launch into the red line round. And 
Lynn, what the red line round is. Five rapid fire questions. There's no right or wrong answer to it. Whatever pops into your head is the right answer. Are you ready? I'm ready. Who or what has been your inspiration throughout your journey in the industry? Actually, the human being that's the biggest inspiration for me has been Billie Jean King. You know, I watched her beat Bobby Riggs in 1973, and, and I think that kind of kicked me in the butt to say I could pursue racing and race against the guys and not be intimidated by it or not be afraid of it. And that started it. And then when I got involved with the Women's Sports Foundation and learned how powerful she is and how strong she is, I think that just really helped set the tone for me. Did you get to meet her in person and everything? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She is a fireball, man. I had an opportunity to talk about a badass. I'm telling you, she is. Oh, my gosh. I saw her on an interview. Um, It was like a, I forget the name of the show, but I was just watching her. And and I've seen like older interviews and stuff like that had to be been recorded like within this last like, I want to say 10 months. Wow. Just as fiery now as she was then. Yeah. I would just fire is the word, right? Yeah. She just fiery as could be. Like it's infectious. Yes. It is infectious. I've had dinner with her. We're just trying to have a civil conversation. And the next thing you know, she's pounding on the table about some subject because she's so powerful, you know, and And passionate. Yeah. Yeah. What a passionate woman. And authentic and everything, you know, so, so she continues to inspire me. Where do you go or what resources do you use when you want to learn something new or you feel stuck? Go to the beach. Mm. Get quiet. I love it. What excites you most about what you're doing now? Um, Excites a positive thing. I I think, oh God, that's a really tough one because I'm actually struggling right now trying to figure out how to make all this happen that I just talked about. So um yeah. So I think it's that word. Yes. I, I hear no all the time. And if somebody says yes, good idea, Lynn, or, or something, you know, a positive response excites me. I don't get them that often. <laughs> and yet you keep going. Yeah. What is a personal habit or practice that has helped you significantly in this industry when you feel stuck or unsupported or discouraged? A personal habit. Um, journaling. Mm. I journal and I go back and look at them. Unfortunately, it feels like a broken record a lot when I go back and look at them. But but and that tells me, oh, Lynn, you've been there before. So yeah, journaling is uh, is a personal habit that I have. Whether it's making notes in my calendar, and I keep them. I keep them. And after doing the book, particularly, I learned that who knows what the future holds. I cannot agree with you more. And sometimes it's good to see how far you've come. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We're oftentimes our own worst critic. Yeah. I mean, I learned that, as I said, when I did the book, but every one of us has a journey. Every one of us is, and even though there's similarities, whether it's gender, whether it's industry-wide, whatever it is where we have similarities, we still are, have a unique, everybody has a unique experience. So, so capture it in some way, in your own way. What's your parting advice to other femcanics finding their way in the motorsports industry? Be authentic. You know, be be who you are. Don't try to be somebody else. Simple. So simple, but true. And finally, Lynn, how and where can the listeners contact you or reach out to you if they want to share, hey, I have this idea or I think it's missing this? Well, if you go to my website, there is a tab that says contact or, you know, that you can, I get all of those. I don't have anything between me and it. So um, all I ask is that, don't just give me an idea, have a plan of how to make the idea happen. I mean, I don't, 
I don't want to burden. I don't want to be carrying anybody else's burden. I will respond to every one of those. It may not be immediate, but I am the one that answers them. So reach out through my uh, through my website. I want to reiterate that to the listeners. It is so easy to point out gaps, issues, shortcomings, problems. That's the easy part. <laughs> Come to the table with some ideas or solutions. Now we got something to work with rather than sitting around and people just complaining. Yeah. And I might not agree with the solution, but at least I can respond to that as opposed to putting the burden on me and then wanting to me to pick my brain to come up with what do you think we should do about that? Or try to fix everything. Yeah. Right. Let's work together. A lot more gets done. Lynn, thank you so much for being on the show and being willing to be in the driver's seat. I have really enjoyed our time. And I often share this, that more is caught than taught. And I could not agree with you more about your statement. It's really about proximity, surrounding yourself with people that are better than you, smarter than you, have more experience than you. And care about you. And care about you, genuinely care about you. Just by being in the proximity around them, you're going to pick up and learn so much, so much. More is caught than taught. And I hope that I have the opportunity to meet you in person one day, just to be in your presence and see how you interact with other people and particularly business people, because that is powerful to me. And there's so many lessons in just sitting back and observing women like yourself interacting in business type functions. There's so much to learn. And I hope I get blessed with that opportunity someday to just be a sponge and be around you and observe that. Well, we'll just make it happen. I love it. I'm all about making stuff happen. Thanks again, Lynn. I appreciate it. That's all right. Thank you for the platform and for the great conversation. I am Lynn St. James, race car driver, and I'm a femcanic. Lori Johnson is in the driver's seat next. She's been in the automotive industry for over 20 years. Lori has experience in all back-end service operations, also has worked as a technician, a service writer, and a service manager. She uses her skills and knowledge in helping other women feel empowered with their automotive knowledge through her Ladies Start Your Engine program. Be sure to check out next week's episode as this strong and independent woman shares with us how women can change the automotive industry. Until next time, Femcanics. Thanks for listening to the Femcanic Garage Podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Femcanic Garage. Check out our website, femcanicgarage.com, for swag and the transcribed for each episode. If you want to help, grow this community, do me a favor and subscribe, rate, review, and most importantly, share this podcast. Spread the word. This is Jamie B. signing off. Are you a femcanic?